Hello! Whoa. Well, let's reel that back in there. Hey, y'all. Hello. <laughs> How y'all feeling? I'm, Ergo- cle- I'm clearly very giddy. I'm, man, I'm all over the place. It is Ergo Radio, Thursday noon, WHPK, 88.5 FM, Ergo Radio. Shout out Post Loudness. Absolutely. We don't shout them out enough. We don't do that enough. Let's, gonna make, that, let's make that a regular thing. Post Loudness is the podcast collective that we're part of. Incredible shows, all based here in Chicago. You should check them out. You should also just check us out. What we do here, I'm Kiss, by the way. Oh, I'm Damon. How y'all feeling? In case you were wondering who you were talking to, uh, we showcase strong young voices from Chicago and beyond. Interviews with artists, organizers, poets, rappers, musicians, folks uh, reshaping the culture of our city and our country for the more equitable and the more creative. Uh, before we get to our very special guest, a couple community announcements. You got anything up top? Or you want me to do a couple? Hey, did we just talk about this? Oh, man, I wanted to put you on the spot. There. Uh, well, yeah, I'll do a couple. First and foremost, uh, if you like the poems, uh, which we ostensibly do since we talk about it a bunch, there's a great event uh, tomorrow night. That's Friday at the Women and Children First Bookstore up in Andersonville. Uh, Morgan Parker is reading from her book, There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce, with uh, Jamila Woods, Nate Marshall, and Jose Olivares. That should be good. It's, I believe, free. Um, on Friday, outside the Thompson Center at noon, there's a Mother's Day demonstration in solidarity with incarcerated mothers. Um, that's noon at the Thompson Center on Friday. On Saturday, um, there's a Know Your Rights um, home ownership workshop at the Westside Legal Center. Uh, you can find that info on Facebook. And also, our wonderful associate producer, Lola, who just finished her freshman year, is back and reminded us, um, there's a great concert Friday night. That's tomorrow night. Uh, it's a fundraiser for Planned Parenthood at the Metro featuring Cain and the Burns Twins, a whole bunch of other folks. Uh, you should definitely go through that and support. You got you got yours? Man, that was tough. Man, I dragged it as long as I, I could. I appreciate man. that, man. <laughs> I, I am over-reliant on cell phone signal. Sprint. All right. <laughs> This Saturday, March 13th, May 13th, anti-shout-out sprint. Uh, May 13th, this Saturday, is the day before Mother's Day. There's going to be a vigil and event starting at noon uh, at Cook County Jail, which is 26 in California. Um, That is organized by Moms United Against Violence and Incarceration. Uh, And that's going to be a really powerful, beautiful event. Please bring any toiletries or other supplies that can be donated to inmates and other women in need. Uh, Yeah, Let Us Breathe is going to be there. So... Make that move, y'all. All right. So before we get into the, you know, the the personal, the human, the story, we want to extend the community announcement plug time to our guest today. If you got stuff you want to plug up top, or we can do it at the end. It's up to you. Uh, maybe we should do both now and at the end. Yeah, that's double, double plug. So, Let's so go. We're, we're down Let's for the go. double plug. I'll plug my non-open TV stuff first. On Tuesday at Garfield Park Conservatory, the Chicago Home Theater Festival will be there. Uh, Mayna McNeil from the Chicago Parts District and Honey Pot Performance and I will be creating a night of performance. We have um, music, poetry, uh, some storytelling about that neighborhood, all at the conservatory from 6 to about 9. That's like my favorite 
Yeah, that sounds in the city. super beautiful. It's going to be amazing. I mean, it's we've never been in the conservatory before. I was about to say, do, do things like this happen there? Uh, I think they do programming, okay. but we're with Night Out on the Parks. And it's the mm. first time home theater is working with yes, uh, Scarfo Park. Yeah. I once uh, I once interrupted a wedding happening there by accident. Okay. But we can get to that later. What, what, what else you got up top? Um, and I also have a screening at Comfort Station on Wednesday, the following day, we're showing um, some works from local artists, Kiam Junio. We're showing their cooking show, Filipino Fusions, Vegan Filipino Food, and uh, Kissing Walls, from a kind of local gay drama. Um, these are all on our platform, but we haven't screened them in Chicago before. So Comfort Station at 8 p.m. That's what's mm-hmm. up. That's what's up. You know how like jokes are all about timing? Mm-hmm. So I missed the whole like wedding crashing thing, mm-hmm. and I was going to do a thing about like, do you sell maple syrup salesman? Wedding Crashes, anybody? Nobody loves the movie Wedding Crashes but me? Minute. 16-year-old me. Oh, all right. Well, somebody out there listening loves Man, Wedding Crashes. You put me on the spot, up. and then I, yeah, I hope they're having a great time. It's all time for you. Right it's now. for the people. All right, let's get into it. So if you're wondering what that, <laughs> that aforementioned platform and who that wonderful voice that you just heard uh, was, we have a very special guest, a professor, a scholar, a creator, the founder of Open TV. AJ Christian. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to do the whole show very low key, except for the sound. (laughs) How, uh, how are you feeling? As we always like to ask, uh, how is the world treating you today? And how are you treating the world? The world is treating me beautifully today. Uh, It's sunny. It's a spring day in Chicago. uh, And I'm here talking to some dope people. And how are you treating the world i'm treating the world great i am walking in my purpose today mm-hmm. um and just trying to send light everywhere i can man wow that's our so we start every show and i, I like to like not rank the answers to that but that was really that was like, up there whew, if we have wow. percentiles <laughs> Have you done radio type things? I've done a couple of podcasts. Okay. You have like a there's classic a, podcast there's a voice. Soothe, can like, yeah. You're oh, soothing honey. me with your voice right now. Oh, yeah. great. <laughs> uh, on that note, I mean, sometimes I wonder. So first off, sometimes I wonder like if I'm full of shit, right? In general. Okay. Um, and you'll, I'll, I'll get to somewhere with it. But I think like, you know, we're up here. I was feeling this on the commute and walking through the U Chicago campus here. And we're up here and we're talking all this stuff. But we've been on a couple college campuses in the last couple of weeks giving talks and, you know, we're, we're using this space. And sometimes I wonder, Shout like, out Oberlin. Shout out Grinnell. Yeah, no, that was great. They were really fun. But sometimes I wonder, like, and I'll use I pronouns in this. Sometimes I just wonder, like, am I up here talking a whole bunch of stuff from this, like, very elitist place in a university? Um, and I'm not even in it. But, I'm you, you know, that's the space that I operate from. And then I think about um, the ways that you use the university access and resources and your scholarship to create and go back and forth in that at Northwestern. And it, it, again, it's not that it like validates or gets rid of that concern on my part, but it does show me that like there is a way to do this and to make things with, from within that space. So I'm wondering just first off, um, how do you think about, and I'm going to start big. How do you think about, your scholarship and relating like is making these shows and making this platform separate or part of the scholarship piece itself. Oh yeah. It's all integrated. Um, so, you know, I run a platform called open TV. Shout out. 
Um, I, I call it a platform for queer television or a platform for intersectional television here in Chicago. And I really started it for so many reasons, you know, to address problems with the web series market generally, to create a space for folks who didn't have a place to put their work online. But, you know, I got here to Chicago with a university job on tenure track and tenure track professors are supposed to do this thing where they publish books and research articles for each other, right? <laughs> um, as opposed to for anyone else. And I just... Ooh, did you see my sources? <laughs> 500 footnotes. Um and I saw so many of my colleagues go on tenure track and just sort of like lose themselves. You know, uh-huh. they just went into a depression, um, you know, really didn't take care of themselves, their health. They didn't have community. They were lonely. Yeah. And I just didn't want that. Was, to that, be me. was that scary to be observing that? Like, because yeah. it's, it's such a like a firm position, right? Like there's almost a, I made it type of feel. But then to seeing your predecessors or to be seeing your, your homies like struggling. What was that like right there when that observation? Um, well, it was frightening and I, I knew I didn't want to cut myself off from the world in order to keep a great job, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think so often in America today, we ask people to deny themselves to work and to live. Um, and I just think there has to be another way, especially when you work with institutions that have so many resources, they should be the places of good work, right? right. And also of work that matters to the world. Um, so I just decided that was not going to be my life. But I did go through about two years of depression because I didn't know what the you know what the goal was, what the trajectory was. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what my book was about. And I was new to the city and I didn't know anybody. Yeah. Um, and so my response to getting out of that depression was really just to go out into the city and hang out with artists and meet people. And those are the people that really inspired me to do Open TV. And I thought that you know my scholarship has to serve them as mm-hmm. much as it serves me. And so the goal of the project really is to you know sort of get people collaborating and use that to generate a data set to give my university de- the deliverables that they want in terms of articles and books and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, I think we talk about how, especially like with the show and just in our kind of organizing model, expecting and demanding that our, you know, the scholars studying this work and the journalists documenting it and the documentarians are also participating and contributing. Um, and that that is central to it. And, and I'm curious for you, like, cause it sounds like, you're going to do the work because it serves this need. And then you're going to figure out how to present that to the university so that it also like gives them the check marks that they need. And a lot of what that looks like, whether it's in regard to your book or just in looking at some of the other things that you've published, and it's not all of your scholarship, but some of it is writing about things that you make <laughs> with this academic framework. Does it ever feel weird to be writing, you know, journal articles or, or things like that about something that's also something you created from the inside. Oh yeah, totally. Cause everyone I work with, you know, they've become my friends and my community and right. they're people I mm-hmm. like love and trust and want to see succeed as well. So I have to sort of take all of those like very deep feelings and then kind of throw like theory on top of it, yeah. right. you know, so that it's intelligible to others is valuable. Um, and it's definitely like an awkward process. It's going to be interesting to see, how it develops because as i get deeper into this right i'm only going to be more invested right Mm -hmm. in these people Mm -hmm. um and yet i still will have to have this removed kind of when i'm writing Mm -hmm. um so that's a tension that i am still working to resolve frankly where is that sitting 
right now, that tension? <laughs> well, I, I'm happy to have published at least one article on the project. And that was based on a pilot that I made called Nupita Obama Creates mm -hmm. Voga in collaboration with um, three artists, Eric Wallace, Kiam Junio, who I mentioned at the top of the show, and Sai Naomi, um, who have different artistic practices, hip hop, performance art, and drag. Um, and then a couple other pilots as well from Rashida Cambay from uh, South Shore and Zachary Drucker, um, who's actually out in LA, the only open TV artist not in Chicago. She works on Transparent. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, you know, that article just got published last month. It's been circulating. And I think people, I think the artists are proud that their work has been validated in this way, that it's, you know, I'm saying that this little kind of video that we made actually helps us reconceive television. Yeah. And it seems like, it's sitting well with them so far. Mm -hmm. um, but I haven't really gotten yet to the messy parts of this project, the parts that don't work, the the limits of it, yeah. you know, that's going to come up in future articles. And so I don't yet know. I haven't negotiated that yeah, yet. Yeah, that self-criticism, though, that's something that I think maybe that role asks of you in doing that kind of like, Absolutely. whether it's the theory or just like being self-critical in that way. Yeah. Maybe not without all of the, you know, it doesn't have to be fully thought out, but now that this is something that is established and has track record and people look to, like, where are you feeling, if not limitations, like... Where are you struggling? Where, 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 to, where's the wrestle right now? Yeah. 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 So I do interviews with my artists after I mm -hmm. work with them. Um, and by and large, the critique that we get the most is just around resources and money. You know, we have resources through Northwestern. Mm -hmm. um, and thankfully this year, I've gotten more through a retention agreement. Um, but it's still not enough, right? TV is very expensive. And so we're not paying people market rate. I'm not paying anyone like a living wage yet. Like no one's like living off of open TV funding right now. And mm -hmm. that's clearly where I want to be, right? Because yeah. this is a project about correcting inequalities. Um, but even goes to the fact that like, you know, the team that I have, they're not full-time, right? I'm not paying them full-time, so they can't fully serve the artists that right. we're working with. Um, so that means, you know, like certain pieces that we release don't get the kind of traction of our, of, of our bigger shows, like our video art experimental pieces, because our team doesn't have all the legwork and the time to like fully market that work and get it out to the people who need to hear right. about it and whatnot. Um, so yeah, we have a lot of work to do. I mean, we've I feel open TV is sort of starting to get roots and yeah. get established, but I also know we've got a lot of work to do. But what I love about the research frame is that research is all about asking questions and addressing problems, right? So the fact that it's not perfect is actually exactly what makes it an experiment and allows me to advocate for more resources from my university and other funders to test out new models and actually try and improve it, right? It's, Ooh. A, it's like the opposite. I'm going to do, do a snap. Insert. A very loud snap. Yeah, insert said sound. <laughs> I'll put it in in post. <laughs> um, but it's actually like the opposite of that network model, right? Where it's like how how like ironclad can we make this as something that will make money and that we like in they're, they're wrong all the time. They're wrong But it's all like the time. how much can you make this like not a question about whether this will succeed. Right, like not have a media platform that's driven by hits, right? Because mm -hmm. we know that this like insistence on hits really puts mm -hmm. pressure on folks who are marginalized, who haven't had as many opportunities to even generate an understanding of how to do their work effectively, mm -hmm. right? So like, you know, networks do a black queer show, it bombs, all of a sudden all of Hollywood yeah. says black queer shows don't work. Right. And it's like that model is clearly unsustainable. So I think we have to think about new ways to fund and release content. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing I'm hearing there that like, I'm trying to be more intentional about like just spreading out to all walks of life, whether it's culture, media, um, you know, regular consumer goods is that the market is harmful. Like we just need to name that. Um, but I, I want to go back 
to, so everybody, y'all, y'all with me? Stay with me. So I'm doing this. <laughs> so, I'm, so I'm doing this new thing uh, where I have a bunch of things I want to ask. Uh-huh. So like I make a list, and then we like get to them gradually. All right. So I'm gonna throw some things out that I've heard that I definitely want to get to. But I'm doing this because the thing that you said very early on, I don't want us to forget about. Yeah. So. The, on the list, uh, definitely want to have a deeper conversation about Northwestern because I've been feeling like in the last few weeks, there, there's been a lot of like Northwestern presence up here. And I want to go deeper, especially as we're in a university space we've, here. We've interviewed like now half the communication. <laughs> like it's getting a little <laughs> that, that is Tooks. That is Tooks, who is a student there. Uh, we had knowledge. knowledge Evans, uh, Nate Marshall, just an ever present <laughs> entity of Ergo Radio, whether he's here or not. So definitely want to talk about that. I want to go deeper. Um, into the backstory because uh, I think I, I've seen you emerge and like we've been in some of the spaces and I've seen your public facing, but I want to know some of the oops, some of the foundation and the development and where home came into play. Uh, and then that last part uh, around funding, uh, I, I want to hear how, if you're wrestling with um, moving from like the dependency on institutional funding to being regenerative, but how do we do that when we're talking about how the market can be so harmful? So those are some things I want to get to. All right. The Love record those. shows. All right. So, but what you said is that this is <laughs> this is like a platform, but it's also research-based. But very early on, you were intentional of using the language of queer and intersectional. And these are things I've both been having conversations about like the last 24 hours. So I would love to know, um, and Miriam Kaba, go check out that episode. Anybody listen, did give, a, give us a really good inf- definition of intersectional. But I want to know for you, how did you define those very big concepts going into the work? And has the work as you've been developing it changed or, you know, reshaped your understandings or formations of those concepts? Ooh, wow. Great all question. Right. See, I'm sorry. I know that was a lot, <laughs> but are, you, are we here? Are we all good? We're here. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I don't think I, that's a better question I've gotten in academic conferences even. Um, <laughs> so, you know, intersectionality is a Take that academic conference. Fuck you, nigga. <laughs> <laughs> you know, intersectionality has been around for decades, right? This concept. Yeah. And so many people have theorized it through so many fields. Um, mm. You know, for me, thinking about media and narrative, Narrative intersectionality for me looks at storytelling um, and, of course, power through the lens of multiple identities and how intersecting oppressions, but think also intersecting intersecting value, really um, emerges. So, I didn't want to just do like a black network, a queer network, a woman's network, because I've seen in media how segmenting off identities actually disregards whole populations and communities of people. Um, I was inspired by particularly the work of Kara Keeling, who's a a professor at USC. Um, She had this notion called queer OS or queer operating system. And it was a kind of challenge to media scholars to think about um, sexuality across race, gender, class, religion, nationality, citizenship, disability, et cetera in conjunction with media and technologies and all of those things as inseparable. And that we actually have to create a method that intervenes in how we understand sexuality across identities, Mm -hmm. as well as how we understand sexuality across media and information technologies. Um, And so that's really how I approached Open TV. But of course, you know, I've read Audre Lorde, you know, (laughs) I've read Kumbaya River Collective, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, and all these folks, particularly Black women, of course, are sort of the foundation of intersectionality, looking at the intersection of race and gender, understand that we cannot separate identities, but we have to look at the particular ways in which those identities um, move throughout society and particularly how power 
puts pressure on those identities. I think what Open TV has shown me, and we've always known this, but it's given me empirical evidence, is that even amidst those that oppression, intersectional folks create tremendous beauty and value, right? Yeah. And they really create value both by critiquing those institutions that seek to oppress them, but then also creating new formations and new forms of art and ways of expression mm. out of that. Yeah. So I want to jump to a potential example of that, which is your medium in this, of the web series, um, which is, you know, different people have different levels of familiarity with it. But let's say outside of the open TV community, are there examples, like say maybe before you started doing this project that you were, you were seeing folks using this form in that radically imaginative way? Ah, yes, Just indeed. some historical shout outs in here. Indeed. Um, yeah, totally. So my first book, Open TV, Innovation Beyond Hollywood and the yeah, Rise I haven't of Web read Television. It, so you give it, sorry about that. <laughs> no, 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 it's not it's not out. It comes out later this year. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Woo! All right. Yeah. Academic publishing, we know our books are kind of come out like about a year before they actually okay. come out. <laughs> um, and it's basically a history and theory of web TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and web series have existed since the mid 90s. And so there's been so many people telling so many different kinds of stories throughout our history. I think most recently, of course, I was inspired by Issa Rae, mm-hmm. uh, creator of Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, which was actually her third web series. Mm-hmm. Um, she did a, something called Dorm Diaries and another one called The Fly Guys, which is kind of a mockumentary hip hop web series. Um, and she was just so great about not only making her own work and creating work through her own projects, but then also distributing the works of other indie creators who are having a difficult time getting yeah. through Hollywood. You know, once she found an audience for Awkward Black Girl, she was like, I've got this big YouTube subscriber base. A, I can't produce to keep them satisfied. So why don't I just partner with other Black TV creators, mostly in Hollywood, to release their shows? And now she releases short films. Mm. She's got a podcast that's actually a Black queer podcast called Fruit. Um, she uh, does. She's working with studios to bring writers into yeah. rooms and create new shows. Um, she's really just kind of that model of what, frankly, Black women particularly throughout history have done, which is like build from nothing, right? (laughs) Um, And really create opportunities for folks. Um, She partnered a lot with Black and Sexy TV, which Mm -hmm. is another super influential model for open TV. Um, They started by making sort of Black romantic comedies and dramas on YouTube for free, and then realized they had an audience, so they moved to VHX, a subscription platform, Mm -hmm. and now you can spend seven bucks a month to keep their productions going, and they consistently make new shows. And they've been out for a minute. Like, I remember seeing something like a long, like when we were freshmen in college, like they've been going for a while. At least five years, if not a little bit longer. Um, And so, you know, that showed me that there are ways to at least create sort of networks outside of the network system, right? That you can create not only just new shows, but new distribution platforms um, that serve underserved communities. Um, there are so many of these networks right now. There's Slay TV, a Black queer network, Reverie TV, uh, Deku, Tello has for a long time was in Chicago, a lesbian network. And seeing these really made me think, okay, open TV can work, but let's think about those things outside of the market. Let's think about nonprofit models and maybe not using nonprofit to seed um, uh, resources to leave that space eventually, which might get to yeah. your next question. Yeah. I want Actually, I want to stay... Here, but we're but you're like I like that. This is fun. Just relieving, working on it together. We're leaving breadcrumbs. We're getting there. Um, so I, I like to ask a lot about like process. 
And it's, and I usually, it's usually for like the hypothetical, like the 16 year out there who might be listening and one day might want to do whatever it is that you do. But actually speaking for myself, like creating a series is one of my like biggest lifelong goals. Oh, uh, let's talk. But, <laughs> I, but I don't have a like, we, actually, we brought you here to pitch for <laughs> but, but I, you know, I'm not anywhere with that goal, right? I'm not having like worked on it yet. Um, and I don't know the distinction between like the different levels of like platform, right? Um, so is there anything structurally or artistically specific in your research or as a, somebody with the experience now that is um, that is distinct to the web series on like forming and creating for someone who is more or less novice, right? But has this passion or has this idea and they just like have a camera or have a plot, right? Or a pilot. Um, is there something that you're learning that is distinct or specific about the formation or about the craft of it? That's a great question. Um, as a researcher, I try not to put too many rules and boundaries on things. Mm -hmm. So, but also I've seen just looking at this market that there's so many different ways to make web series. Um, and even looking at film budgets, like as a reviewer now, like there's so many different ways to even think about like the resources that you have to make something. Mm -hmm. um, I really focus anyone who talks to me for open TV on, you know, what is the story you want to tell? What is what, what do you absolutely need to tell that and get rid of anything extraneous, mm -hmm. right? Think about sort of the core of the story um, and scale it down so that you can make it as good as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and so that could be, you know, like you're making a show about someone expressing who they are and all you need is a webcam. And that's the way you tell the story. Someone talking to the internet about their mm -hmm. show. And that's been done so well online with, um, you know, way back when, I don't know, you're probably too young to remember this, Lonely Girl 15 was like the first big web series hit on <laughs> YouTube. <laughs> On uh, 2006, it sort of started as a vlog and people thought it was real. And then it turned into this scripted thriller series that <laughs> was okay. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, the Lizzie Bennett Diaries, there was this studio that was remaking late 19th century novels because they're in the public domain, yeah. but doing it through vlogs, like super bare bones <laughs> kind of storytelling. Yeah. You know, you don't need a lot of set design. You don't need a lot of locations. Um, but then thinking about like high maintenance, right. uh, which is on HBO right now, but they, you know, would take one location, maybe two, just give an actor some place, space to kind of give a character some life, yeah. very loose storylines, just kind of trying to be real with people. And that works super well, you know? And then you have people who are trying to do like serial thrillers and dramas or whatever. So I always think about like, what are the resources you have? Do you know actors? Do you know crew? Do you have money or do you have people who could fund it? Um, and how do we pull those together to make something happen? So the whole process um, is really very organic. Yeah. Uh, and it's really just about trying to understand what value you can create from what you have. Yeah. I mean, that's, we hear relationships, it in, yeah. in all of relationships, totally. <laughs> and, and not being like, it has to look like this whether it's aesthetically or scale wise, but it's about what is the story that I want to tell? Because I've seen online, you know, things take off that like don't quote unquote look the best, you know, um, and no shade to folks who do that kind of work. But even like the first episode of Awkward Black Girl is not like technically the most masterful thing ever created, mm -hmm. but it was a good story and it was real. Like people could sense immediately that it was coming from a real place. Uh, and I think that matters just so, so much more. I also give a shout out to Cookie Hughes, um, who was in our Open TV Writers Group this year, Chicago based uh, creator who did has done a number of films and series uh, but her work is you know super bare bones but her storytelling is just so dope everyone needs to google if i was your girl it's like an hour and a half is the first three episodes and it's like i think 
if that was on Netflix, it'd be a hit and it'd be all we're talking about. We'll share the link. Look at that. There we go. Um, but I, wa- I want to go back to something that you were talking about earlier and the, the range of the ways that people use this form um, and all the different kinds of shows that, that Open TV is creating. And I could imagine that based on the form and just based on those relationships, um, like your interactions and the way you think about your role to those different shows is different show to show. Yeah. Um, how do you envision your relationship with those creators? Um, and is there like a role that you try to avoid in relation to that, either between you and them or in terms of how the world views your relationship to it? Oh, interesting. Um, what do I try to avoid? I generally speaking, try not to take the creative lead on the project unless it's my own, which, you know, I always try to keep like one project that's my own that I write, um, as a way to make sure that we might have IP that like can come into open TV because mm. one of the foundational tenets is that the artists keep the intellectual property mm. with us. We don't like try and take any of and that. And is that not the norm? It's the norm for indie web TV networks, but it's not necessarily a norm in Hollywood. Of course. Different networks are different and every show is different, but generally speaking, Hollywood is increasingly interested in taking your IP. Right. What, a, can... what a concept. <laughs> intellectual property. Yeah, I know, right? It is a concept, right? <laughs> and That's like, crazy. Because it's all like, it's just an idea, it's just a piece of paper, right? Yeah, like right? it's just an idea, but like it could generate potentially billions of dollars right. and they want to make sure they have a cut of that right. um, where I have no interest in whatsoever. Um, so... But yeah, I view myself as of service to creators. I'm a helper and I've Mm -hmm. been lucky over my career to get enough skills across all the things in production to be able to roughly assist everybody. And I have a team behind me who have more specific skills in production, um, marketing, exhibition and development. Um, So, you know, sometimes I'm your grant writer and I'll help you write your grant or write it for you. Sometimes I'm your cook and I'll cook for your set. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I've, you know, produced, I've edited. Have Have you held the boom mic? I actually, I think I have, I have, I have had the boom. Yeah. I'm just like imagining a bunch of like stills from set of like, just like, where's AJ? Like you just, <laughs> yeah, the camera, the boom, the crock pot. I've been a production been, assistant. I've held, you know, been an extra. I have been an extra on a couple of things. You've probably seen me in a couple of shows. Um, I've held the umbrella over the cinematographer so that she could get a shot, you know, on, um, on Rashida's pilot. So, um, yeah, I've done it all. Um, and in some ways that makes me unique. It's not like it'd be hard to replicate this model just because I do think to start it up, you sort of need all of those skills because you're not going to have necessarily the resources to do it. But hopefully by doing it, I can show other institutions that they can do this too. Just invest in it. And like, you can so, so did you have these production based skills coming into it? I did. Let's yeah. Have you held an umbrella before. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's get back to some of the, the backstory of like where those skills, where you first started to build those skills. Yeah. Spaces. Um, so I don't have a film degree. I got my PhD from the university of Pennsylvania um, in the communication school. And I lucked out in that when I got there, they had two professors who both were doing this thing of bridging production and research. Mm-hmm. So my uh, advisor, Catherine Sender, had made a couple documentaries. Um, a committee member, John Jackson, um, had done a couple of films. He's an ethnographer, sort of black culture. And so I was they were really cool about like offering sort of really simple production classes in grad school. Um, and at that time, I was also interviewing indie TV creators like Issa Rae, 
Abby Jacobson and Lana Glazer of Blard City and asking them, like, how did you do this? Why did you do this? And so many of them were like, I didn't go to film school. I didn't know what I was doing. And yet they'd created these hit shows. So it made me think, well, maybe I can do that too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my dissertation year, my partner, Derek, um, he's a writer. He had been doing indie theater in New shout York. Shout out to him. Yeah, shout out Derek. Shout out to Derek McFadder. <laughs> um, and he, uh, his producing partner, um, Teresa Lastly had an idea for a web series and he kind of told me offhand like, hey, Teresa wants to do this show called She's Out of Order. And I was like, well, that's a great title. I think people would watch that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I used my dissertation funds, which wasn't much. It was like a couple thousand dollars to basically do a web series. So the year before I went on the market and wrote my dissertation, I made a web series for three weekends in, uh, in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, I, again, all hands on deck, held the mic, um, you know, helped hire the crew, helped find the locations, that sort of thing. Um, and that experience of making that web series and also releasing it um, is in my book as prologues to the topic chapters. Mm. So I found that it gave me a grounded perspective on what I was studying. And I did it because I was interviewing folks for the web series, like after the fact, right? Like I was never able to get on set because unlike in Hollywood, indie creators shoot when they can. They don't like send a press release. Hey, we're going into production. Um, So it gave me all this great insight into the market. So I decided when I came to Northwestern that I would try to do that again and really push that method forward. Um, And I'm not the first one in Canada. They have like research creation. Sometimes you call it arts-based research here. Mm -hmm. Scholars doing work in collaboration with communities and artists. Um, But I wanted to do it at a higher scale, right? I didn't want to just do one production. I wanted to do development and distribution and see if I could pilot multiple productions. And have, it sounds like, have the audience be not within the academy. I mean, that's the other thing, right? It's like that, I would imagine a lot of that artistic creation that's in partnership there, then either it's like formally for within the research model or... Like it doesn't have the legs to be pushed out into the world the way some of the open TV stuff has. It depends. I mean, I think folks do try and do stuff for communities, but when you're only doing one thing and you're a researcher, you're really focused on like your deliverables to the university. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really wanted to work with a diverse array of artists and diverse array of projects across communities that would force me to sort of be out there and be accountable to those communities. So I'm 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 gathering up the story. We're at PhD. Let's go all the way back to like the first dot. Like what is home? Oh or where? Or where? Where? Is, where is home? Where, home. Where and what? Or who? Home or is <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in uh, the suburbs of New Jersey. Um to Caribbean parents. My mom is Jamaican, my dad is St. Lucian. Um my parents are immigrants. My grandma took my mom here, my dad moved. Uh, his, most of his family still in St. Lucia. Um, and we ended up in Jersey through a weird confluence of events of my grandma's a nurse and um, sort of got this uh, home gifted to her because one of the people she was taking care of uh, didn't have any family and loved my grandmother and our family. Um, and so I grew up in what became a very like wealthy white suburb and um, very much spent my youth trying to figure out, like, I knew I was black. My parents told me I was black and that I had to excel because, right, like Daddy Pope told to Olivia, we got to do twice as good <laughs> to get half as far. Um, but, like, that was Message. all I knew. Like, <laughs> How much of your narrative would you say parallels the Olivia Pope narrative? <laughs> uh, well, I don't wear all white and I'm not sleeping with the president, thank God. So <laughs> hopefully not much. <laughs> but um, Wow, that show takes on a whole new meaning when Donald Trump is the president. Ooh, I mean, that's yeah. probably why they, they just announced they're like going into the last season. Yeah, 
they're like, we they're probably like, ah. Well, Shonda has said that she always knew what the end was. So, okay. you know. But I, ha- I have been thinking about, and this is a brief like sidebar, I have been thinking about how, so a lot of times, whether it's movies or TV shows, I kind of think like they, we have these like fictional stories and then when things happen similar in real life, like we are more, it's easier for us to accept them because we've seen fictional examples of it. Mm-hmm. So like when I think about what like, you know, disastrous climate change looks like. I think of day after tomorrow. Mm-hmm. If I'd never seen day after tomorrow, I wouldn't know what it looks like. So I'm thinking about like between scandal and house of cards and like us over and over again. Yeah. Like these like insane, ludicrous ideas of what happens in the white house. Uh, now we're like, Oh yeah, no, I, I saw this episode already. You know? <laughs> so I, I don't know. I just think like maybe it pushes folks to maybe accept it a little bit and be less critical, which oh, kind of, which is interesting. Like if we put that back in a conversation with the work and with open TV of kind of like that foreshadowing or that depicting, um, and like the dialectic of how it could be like really harmful or really benef- beneficial. Yeah. Um, the importance of imagery. Yeah. Oh, totally. And I you think, know. you know, I like to hope that my artists are trying to create sort of new futures. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, of course, been inspired by Jose Munoz, the queer scholar, and the idea that, like, queerness is this kind of search for, but also enactment of utopia in the present that always sort of looks forward to a yeah. future that will never come. And I think that, mm-hmm. like, sort of queer, like queer art, that's what it does, right? Um, it gives us sort of a different goal in a way Mm -hmm. um you know growing up as a kid in the 90s there wasn't as much television um though there was a lot of black tv right so i did get like an image of what like a black family looked like on tv um i was in i was younger so i was watching like nickelodeon sketch shows like all that and roundhouse and that sort of thing Um, all that was amazing (laughs) shout out all that all that was like how do you be like a carefree black kid you know (laughs) and just like be silly and like inhabit different identities (laughs) and like enjoy yourself right so i definitely think like i grew up thinking that i could be free right and Mm. then growing up and like going through institutions and like also learning history because like we don't teach kids like real american history in schools realizing that there's still all these constraints to freedom i think my search for my own queerness and blackness was just like a search for like what liberation looks like and Mm. what does it mean to like truly just be free in oneself Mm. i think i've had a lot of privilege you know like i've gone through white schools my entire life, University of Michigan undergrad, you know, Ivy League PhD. And so it's been a little bit easier for me to imagine my liberation. So I think my challenge to myself going forward is to really expand beyond the kind of bourgeois notion of that. In in those bourgeois privileged spaces, do you remember like what was what was the first art form? Was it was it a pen and paper through poetry? Was it a camera? Was it dance? What 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 was what was the moment or the space that was that entry point to like that creative self or that internal search for liberation? Um, I should say that I think I am partially an artist, but I don't necessarily identify yeah. as one all okay. the time. Okay. That's very, very real. Um, <laughs> I, I did journalism. Like my first profession was journalism. I did newspaper okay. reporting, which is like pretty much the least creative act. Like it's so formulaic. Mm. Um, and I love, but I loved writing about artists and um, activists, right? Like I loved sort of seeing them create and trying to track that. And I feel like that's still my role in a certain way. Um, I'm very, yeah. So this is, I'm just going to project for a second. Uh, it seems like, at least for me, when I take on that role of facilitator, some of it is because of a maybe discomfort with being the one created. Like I can map how other people create and be excited by it but it doesn't necessarily make me feel like, 
or I, I'm wrestling with like my own willingness or comfort or taking on the challenge of making myself for you and saying that like you sometimes are an artist, but that's not the necessarily the framework that you, you think of um, what has been kind of the journey to making your own. Cause you said you always, there's always something in open TV. That's your project that you're writing, that you're creating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I was inspired by the internet. Um, did. <laughs> um, and also like nightlife and queer spaces. Right. Yeah. So like drag performance was like super influential for me for sure and also just like dance and like dancing with people who were mm. like more freed from gender constraints than the rest of the mm. um public you know the, i do actually have like some really bad video art on youtube that is now private <laughs> um, like i tried to do some like arty vlogs and stuff yeah. like that but i i've been inspired by people expressing themselves um and i've tried to do it myself i feel like i never do it as well mm. um but for open tv all of my creative projects are really springboards for collaboration so like yeah. Nupita Obama, I wrote a 10-page pilot, but I definitely wrote it for three specific artists. And I asked, I sent them the script and asked them to just change it however they wanted so that it was real to them. Mm. Um, and then when we were on set, I really asked them to bring their own artistry. So there were things that were unscripted that I was like, Eric, you're going to Vogue here. I'm not going to tell you how to Vogue. You're just going to do it, you know, <laughs> or we're going to use your music and we're going to choreograph something in the moment and y'all are going to do it. I have no idea what it's going to look like. So right? th that sounds super dope. The, so are you saying that you gave the same script to three different artists and, and told all three of them to rework it and yeah. then you could like compiled or fit in or made some type of sandwich of... Yeah, mostly. exactly. And mostly what they did was just like change the language so it sounded like real and cool and funny, which is like things I can't necessarily do <laughs> as an academic. Um, and then like on set. You like, mean your dissertation wasn't hilarious? <laughs> it was, there's not a joke in it. Um, so, uh, and then on set, obviously there was a lot of like sort of improvisational stuff that happened, just yeah. like working with queer of color artists. And that's what's in that first article, just showing how like giving artists a platform to be creative, like they will create, you know, you just got to empower them to do that. But I want to stay on this for one more. Is there any frustration in feeling like you can't write that thing that, that feels alive or, or that you can't like, obviously collaboration is a beautiful thing and it's kind of the whole framework of what we do and all of these things. But I do think whether it's specifically in TV or just in general, like there is something to be said for trusting yourself to have the vision and make it. And it sounds like you can do that. You know, you've done it with open TV. You had this vision of what this would look like and you've created it. Um, and so that's a kind of artistry, but on within the medium, like, is that something that you want to grow more comfortable with? Um, I think maybe, but very slowly, mm -hmm. like I'm not really tr out here trying to get like an Emmy or an Oscar, you know, for myself, I'm yeah. really there to create the platform. And I yeah. do view the platform as it's, as itself a creative act. I think yeah. this, the, argument of my second book as i have it right now which won't come out for like five years <laughs> we, already, is, we already have a book too oh, you i haven't got read, to, I haven't you, read got that to in academia. Um, you know is that there is an art to development you yeah. know um and i think it's an understudied art because we have entrusted it to these corporations that pretend like it can be formalized in this way and for they're capital. so bad at it <laughs> and they're so terrible at it they're dreadful like any show that's bad you could is probably bad because a network executive gave too many notes, right? right? Like they just didn't let the artist do what they wanted to or do. Or even if it's just bad, like they have no... Or they didn't give be, enough notes. They thought it was... Or maybe good. they didn't give enough because some writers do need... Yeah, that's <laughs> it's just that they have no... They don't... 
there's no given in this. It's this like weird ineffable thing about like one, what's quality, but then also what people will connect with and, and who, when you think about who the people are that you're trying to connect with, who that is. And they just have no idea. And it's the same dudes have been doing it for however many decades. And it's, it's because they have no understanding of like, they're not open, right, to various kinds of artistic expression and people and identities. Right. Um, and they also have no understanding of scale because it's always done at this sort of high level yeah. scale. So they don't Ever know. expanding growth. Right. And so there's no sense that like something small and intimate can actually be valuable and beautiful as well. Mm. So, you know, my argument is that the art of development is, really is this kind of bottom up resource-driven, community-driven, artist-driven thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's my creative act, right? Like, mm -hmm. that's my sort of artistic contribution. Yeah. Bang. I feel, like, I feel like we're at a breadcrumb right here. It's time to do it. So <laughs> I, I like that. You, I, I didn't even, I thought of it like institutional, but you named it in a way that's more specific earlier. Um, you know, I brought in the market, but then like nonprofit, right? So for-profit and nonprofit, which were both market-based like formations. Uh, but then I just heard you say like resource-based, right? Which is kind of like a third option. So in the activism work, in the organizing and in the artistic spaces, that is like a constant struggle of, you know, not wanting to be capitalist, right? But also not wanting to be dependent or being perpetuators of the nonprofit industrial complex. Yeah. Um, and so I, in your medium and in your platform, I just want to like hear where you are in that struggle because obviously you don't have an answer because then, you know, we would be a revolution right now. Right. <laughs> so I'm not putting that pressure on you at all. But where in your process, uh, where are you with those questions of that pool of, you know, how do we not be trying to sell or just to sell, but not be dependent and then try to regenerate internally? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is a struggle. Yeah. And I'm, we're very much in it right now, you know. I exist in the nonprofit industrial complex. I work for a university with a now definitely seven plus billion dollar endowment. You know, Ooh, cut the check. Um, Northwestern has been in the capital <laughs> campaign. I think they've raised like three billion dollars pretty easily from donors. Um, and yet, <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. That's just. The scale of these things is so ridiculous. It is. And then to think of like that compared to like how much I pay my artists is like pretty unsettling for me on a daily basis, you know, and I would like access to that capital, but I don't have like, I don't have access to that pipeline yet. Right. right. Um, and yet now, like this year, like even this past two months, it seems like I have the administration's like I'm visible to them now and they see potential value in my project. So they might start to sort of like trickle that money down. And the challenge for me is like, I need to pull those resources down, right? And really yeah. get them to the people who need it. But the value of being community-based and being not in Evanston, um, but rather in Chicago, is that this is valuable to other people besides them, yeah. right? And I'm doing it for them. I'm not doing it for the institution. And so if for whatever reason that money dries up or it isn't, useful to us anymore, I can pull the project out of there and have it exist in community. So the, the path to sustainability for OpenTV could be through this nonprofit complex, right? Like I'm leaving it open that I actually might be able to get sustainable resources through nonprofit sources. I might as well, because I'm already paying people through this way. So I have to sort of explore that avenue. Mm -hmm. um, but because we have a black and sexy, right? We have Slay TV. We already have folks who are 
getting money from communities and piping that back into production to pay for those communities to generate representations of those communities. I think it's very possible that in a few years, after we've used these sources for funding to generate shows to show Mm. that we can do this, we can say to communities like, give us a few bucks a month, you know, to keep this going. And if we have a lot of people behind us by then, because we've created a slate of programs, we can actually sort of on a very low scale, sort of keep production going uh, from communities. And that's frankly the ideal place for open TV for me. Um, It is tough because people aren't trained to think about distribution. Like people like individual shows, but they don't necessarily try to think about the distributors of those shows, right? right? So like, if you look at the social media profiles for Brown Girls or You're So Talented, um, possibly Brujos, but maybe not as much, like a lot of them have more likes than we do. <laughs> you know, right. they have more followers than Open TV does because people are used to looking at the shows. Right. Um, so it's sort of my job to see if I can pull people to think like, don't just support an individual artist, support- The collective entity. The collective entity that's sort of trying to support multiple artists, right? And not every show is going to be a hit show that you love, right. but we're going to create all kinds of art that might help you expand your understanding of who you are. And it's how do you do that and bring those eyes and that attention and that support without, you know, framing yourself as the credit taker for the art of these brilliant artists, right? So when a show, I can imagine that being attention either in relationship or in terms of like externally how it's seen. When something like Brown Girls hits and the whole, you know, it felt like the whole world was was talking about it. To, to say like, this is a, this is born of this project and of this idea and look at what we're building, but also like, look at what these brilliant, you know, this small group of brilliant artists did. Yeah. And, and that, you yeah. know, cause I could imagine those eyes and that attention being, being rested the moment. It, it just, I could see that being attention, I think. Yeah. And I think, I think we want to live in that tension, right? Yeah. So like, I'm always going to be supporting artists. Some of them are going to create big hits and we will take credit for how we've helped them get there. Um, But I hope to use some of that attention just to deflect away and pull it to the next one, right? And to the next one and keep going that way. You know, I had a very small hand in Brown Girls. Sam Bailey, who's from Chicago, did our first show, You're So Talented. Um, She directed and produced that. She pulled together the crew. Um, a really a big community of people help organize the dozen plus premieres we had across the country for that Mm -hmm. show. Um, But I will also say if it wasn't for my help getting you're so talented, her first show out and helping her fundraise for the second season, Fatima Oscar from, you know, brilliant poet, young Mm -hmm. Chicago authors, she wouldn't have been inspired to approach Sam to direct Brown Girls, right? right? right. So there's ways, in which, there's ways in which this project is actually showing how like successes are bred from multiple different kinds of people investing mm-hmm. in artists across their careers, right? And it's for me, giving them a couple thousand dollars here, a couple thousand dollars here, organizing a premiere, yeah, you know, yeah. marketing stuff, introducing yeah. them to a writer who'll write about the show, you know, it's sort of a small building thing. And that's the credit we take for, yeah. we take, right? The sort of helping people get to where they need to go. And what I'm hearing is like, you know, organizing and mobilizing uh, resources to produce like these cultural surpluses, right? Like the spillover effect. Uh, and that's powerful, man. Mm. I just want to say like, I just want to like ear note this for our, like this is a cut the check moment. Basically like what you just articulated um, is like a real practice. And then also like a vision of what we're trying to do when we go to these schools, right? Like we, we graduate from a school, very small, but a $1.6 billion endowment, right? So how do we get the people within these institutions starting at like the, at just like the student level of how do we liberate some of these resources? 
resources to invest into like, you know, productions and systems that benefit community. Yeah. Uh, and we all have, we all have assets and power within these institutions. Yeah. You just got to claim it, right? Like I love when students go on strike and act up because y'all sure. are the ones paying. Yeah. So the administration, you'll never have as much leverage as you do right now with Ex a major institution. Exactly. You know, as faculty, you know, we are in a complicated position because we're being paid by that institution. Right. But I use the institution's directive of like, you're here to generate knowledge to say, well, okay, I'm going to generate knowledge to show you how all of these small investments actually grow into bigger investments. And I'm going to use that as a way for you to give me more investments into these communities. You hear that, kids? Professor AJ says, act up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> so they're going to be looking for you next time. There's a, there's a blockade in Evanston. Right. Right. <laughs> this is why I'm nervous about doing media. Like, oh. <laughs> We're just playing. It was, it was me. It wasn't him at all. <laughs> David says, act no, up. No, no. <laughs> I mean, organizing and acting up is important, right? Like we've looked at American history, like almost Almost every important social good has happened from that. So like we can't, I'm an academic. I have to be real to history, right? Yeah, That's yeah. real. So we're talking about like the, the structure in the communal, but I want to just on like a, on a personal level, let's get back into it as, as a TV lover. Like I, I just love to, or, yeah. or it's the best, <laughs> you we know, it's the best. <laughs> Are there shows, let's say from when you were younger that maybe weren't as big as all that people might not know, but like a show that got canceled after that first season or a show that isn't really known that you love just even forget about the theory. You just love to watch. Great question. Or that we might know. Yeah. Oh, that you might know. My goodness. Whoa. That's like, I haven't been asked that question in a long time. <laughs> um, we love to hear that, by the way. Thank you for that. <laughs> you've, you've been affirming our questions consistently throughout the series. Like my um, you know, I really like, as a kid, you often don't know about those shows that get canceled mm -hmm. too quickly, right? Because like you're kind of late to everything. I mean, I loved Fraggle Rock as a kid, but that's mm -hmm. a pretty popular show. People, <laughs> people really love that show. Um, Alex Mack was super cool to me on Nickelodeon. That didn't last too long. Or like the famous Jet Jackson. Like oh, yeah. R.I.P. These R.I.P. Seriously, <laughs> yeah, so sad. Yeah, um, yeah, that was my childhood crush right there. Mm. Um, you know, these shows about like kids who do extraordinary things mm. or like super, were super influential to me. Yeah. Um, and of course, like going into the 2000s, there are so many great shows that got canceled too soon. Um, I liked Pushing Daisies. I don't know mm. anyone heard that show. It was like a little detective show. Remember the poster? Yeah, yeah very like softly queer, but super great vibe, I thought. Yeah. Um, Oh God, so many! I can't. Man, so many great shows that get canceled, and so many terrible shows that don't. You know, so many terrible. shows How about that you, Dame? Was there a shows that you like? Just you loved, and even though people like at school didn't all watch it, but you were always watching that show. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a like a big HBO like nerd. There was this animated show in the life and times of Tim. That was fucking hilarious to me. <laughs> it was just this like dude, like this like underpaid like 20 something dude in new york that was just like always in jams i thought that show was really hilarious um i can think some more you got some no uh, no you're good too yeah. <laughs> i just think because it is like because of the disposable nature of that network system and it just these shows people put years and millions of dollars into that get just disappeared i, I yeah. did like in in probably looking back on it's probably not as good as like as I was invested in, but there was this other show on HBO, How to Make It in America. Yeah. yeah. The Kid Cuddy's on there. I was like, I was invested. Yeah. I liked it. And then they canceled it. And then they picked up girls in the same slot, which then like, even before I had my like, 
my like my black analysis <laughs> I say with the squirrel squirrel up face um, I actually need to watch that show too I had a bad taste and then I ended up watching it and liking it and then I learned I was like okay maybe I don't like it as much as I thought but yeah I was really salty about how to make an American Kid Cudi was killing it man yeah I like this <laughs> yeah. character he's my favorite yeah. character on that that is definitely like in a I, yeah I have no idea if I would like it now right but it, at like 20 year old me you know or 19, talk about fashion, 17 year old yeah yeah and it was in New York so I got super excited yeah, yeah. Um, any, before we get out of here, um, any shows that you're watching right now, whether it's a web series, maybe outside, or let's say even within the open TV thing, shows that you are really loving right now that people may not be having their eyes on that you want to call people's attention to. Oh yeah. Well, obviously you should watch everything on open TV. Absolutely. Um, it's all, it's all Chicago. It's all brilliant. Brujos, Afternoon Snatch. Shout out Ricky Gamble. Shout out Ricky. Shout out Brujos. Like. Man, I, I it took me it took me longer than I'm like proud to say to get to it. But when I sat down, him. like <laughs> the production level of it was so I was so impressed. Like yeah. there was for it to be like that high tech and that like fantastical, is that a word? Yeah. It's fantasy driven. Uh like the the shit was like pulled off like yeah, Ricardo was like very well. super intentional about giving communities that don't get high production value yeah. as high as production value as possible. Yeah. And I, I believe, I believe that that was worth it. You know, I'm not, I don't want to reify high production value, <laughs> but I think it works for that show yeah. for sure. Yeah, sci-fi stuff or like magical realism stuff with low production value that is a great way to turn people off oh like, yeah just like a i remember even watching lost when they like had the smoke monster i was like that looks ridiculous this is like a network show and it even just like looked goofy in that way um so i'm gonna shout out indie web series even though like in terms of like netflix stuff like definitely check out chewing gum that's mm-hmm. a great british yeah. black british series black british indie web series that people should know aki and saltfish mm-hmm. um about two young women sort of having misadventures in <laughs> london uh, I think it's brilliant and it's gorgeous. Um, I uh, have to shout out Polyglot, another great indie uh, series, Brief and Wondrous Life of Caleb Gallo, probably one of the most creative gay uh, web series I've seen. Um, oh my goodness, so many, so many, so many, so many shows. Um, let's move to. Uh, let's go a little bit older. I love this show, Whatever This Is, which is a few years old now, but it's one of the few shows about media labor. Mm. Uh, it's mm. about a queer Latino man and his group of friends in New York trying to like make it in this universe where TV networks underpay reality TV workers mm. and sort of talks about like the depression that that causes in people's lives. Like the, pr- the production staff? And the production yeah. staff, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's a really great show um, that I think was under undersung. Um, Adam Goldman's first show, The Outs, is more sung, and that's also a beautiful show. Um, what else? Man, I mean, this a is a list. great starting yeah, point. Yeah. If, if I could like have... give you a list of links. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. If you have lots of time on your hands, listeners, and just want to watch all the shows. That's the other thing that I feel is like there's just so many things I want to watch. And... Does that ever, like, as a media maker, does like the content overload? Oh. Oh, concern you overwhelm you because i just think about like there's it's impossible to read all the books and watch all the shows like how do you yeah i mean i used to get really nervous in bookstores because i was like i'm never gonna read all these books <laughs> and now it's like the same with tv i mean we're in a they, we call it a peak tv moment last year an estimated 455 scripted shows were released and that's just on like major corporate networks that's, wild. that's not even like indie web series oh, wow 
Um, so then we're talking about like in the thousands. Probably, yeah, like total. So um, I think it's definitely a problem. And that's like one of the reasons why I like doing short form content because these True. corporations are asking us to give a, give them like yeah. 20, 30 hours of our life for their I've shows. I've spent like 700 hours watching Game of Thrones. <laughs> and I have too, and many more rewatching it. So yeah, I, right? Like you know, but still. It's... I'm a little bit of a hypocrite, you know, but I do love Game of Thrones, even though it's kind of problematic. Yeah. Um, Damon knows more about Game of Thrones than any other human being. <laughs> I go deep. <laughs> really? We could do this after. Okay. Let's but I haven't read it. the book, so I can't go that I haven't either. Okay. I'm strictly from the TV, but I do a lot of like Google's. I do a lot of like spark noting of the books. Word. <laughs> <laughs> so stay tuned for AJ and Damon's next podcast. It's a spinoff Game of Thrones Um Thank you so much for being here. Is there a way, other than just going to the Open TV site, how, how should folks stay in tune with the work you're doing? Yeah, the website is weareopen.tv. If you do weareopen.tv slash program, that's our newsletter. Um, we are on uh, Facebook, We Are Open TV. That's probably our most active platform, but we're also on Tumblr if you're on Tumblr. Uh, Instagram and Twitter, all We Are Open TV. Follow us on all those platforms. Check out our Facebook events. We have uh, an event this Sunday, a show called In Real Life from a Northwestern graduate student um, about queer folks across identities, beautiful drama. And then on May 24th, we're premiering two new shows, one starving artist from uh, Dwayne Perkins and Asia Bullock. Asia Bullock was actually had a cameo in Brown Girls mm. in one of the later episodes, kind of a scene stealing moment. Um, that's a black sketch comedy. And we're premiering Very Gita's cool. Guide to Moving On, a uh, South Asian comedy as well. Very cool. So check those out. Follow all at the us. Cultural Center, 6 all to 8. Beautiful. And then go through, like you said up top, uh, what day was the thing at the Garfield Park Conservatory? Oh, that is uh, 6 to 9. Program starts at 6 at Garfield Park. Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming up here and talking with us. Follow at Air Go Radio. Um, you, how do you feel, Damon? You feel good? I feel good. This was really good. This how was you, great. How, how, do you feel, how do you feel? This is one of the best interviews I've had. So yeah. I right. That's what we want to hear. We don't do enough checkouts. Yeah. I like this. Maybe now. See, we keep growing. Like you said, the first episode, episode by episode, we build these things. Um, thank you, you so much. We'll talk to you next week with another Strong Young Voice from Chicago and beyond. Much love to the people. Peace. Peace.